0: If you have never uh, encountered new mercies, please track Bonnie down or Marta or Nicole and find out more about it. It is a great thing. Few, few ministries are going to be closer to the heart of God. You can find that, right, in James chapter 1. Religion that is pure and undefiled is this, caring for orphans and widows and to keep oneself pure in this world. Uh, it is very close to the heart of God what they, they are doing there. So, look them up make sure you find a way you can be involved if you have a bible you can go to the book of hebrews we have been working our way through the history books of the old testament giving one sermon each to each of those books in anticipation of the book of hebrews and today we finally arrive and perhaps the observant among you thinks okay we made it that 55-minute sermon. We are done with the one book, one sermon thing. We can move back into that 40 to 45 minute. And uh, some good news, bad news on that uh, front. I do have uh, the first sermon in the book of Hebrews today, but it happens to be the whole book of Hebrews. So we're still in that exact same predicament that we have been I'll see what I can do. Um, There's there's just a lot of material. I don't know what to say. If you didn't see it on your way in, there are these little uh, journaling books of the book of Hebrews. We did this with Judges, I believe. It it is the text of Hebrews with space to journal on the side. If you are going to use that, please grab one. If you're not going to use it, don't just put it on your shelf, right? You've got a shelf. You want to put books on it. Uh, don't just put it on your shelf. If you're going to use it, go ahead and grab one, please one per person. We'd be happy for you to have that, Um, but let's get into this uh, because, as I said, I've got a lot of material. Um, How do you assign value to an object? you're thinking about what something is worth, how, how do you go about assigning value? We've simplified this question in our modern world because we have currency. We just think in terms of dollars but for the vast majority of humanity we'd had to think through exactly how that works out is this pot worth that chicken or whatever it is you know you got to try and figure out I, I have to weigh that question in my mind over and over and over again and so being good at assigning value is a distinct advantage knowing what something is worth And so you ask that question, how do you assign value? You remember back to your junior achievement days. You remember JA, right? They came into your like fifth grade classroom. They taught you basic economics 101. How do you assign value? There's two things. What is it, class? What do we do? Supply and demand, right? How much of that thing is there? How much is it wanted? That tells you how much a thing is worth. And then you grow up and you realize that's a, that's a load of nonsense. That it, it does not matter what that supply is. It only matters what someone's willing to pay for it. Right? You could have the last car phone on the planet Earth. That thing's still useless. Nobody wants it. Nobody's going to give you money for it. The only thing that matters is what someone is willing to pay. And you may notice that not everyone is good at this question of assigning value as to what someone else is willing to pay. ever been to a garage sale okay see all right all right knowing chuckles through the room you've walked up to a garage sale and been like this is your garbage like you know you're getting rid of all this at the end of these three days right why are you pricing it the way that you are it's not worth it to you you leave it in your driveway overnight if anybody like you just put those tarps over top you think that's going to stop anybody I don't know. I can't budge on that. Nope. That's $45. Can't budge. It's too, too value. Like, no, it isn't. It's not. You've also been to that garage sale. Just pro tip. If you walk up to a garage sale and you see Legos, you buy those things. All right. That's an investment opportunity. That is worth its weight in gold. Whoever sold those did not understand what they had. There was value there. Or if you've seen an episode of Antiques Roadshow, I don't know, do they still do Antiques Roadshow? Right? This guy walks up, he's got his thing, and the, the expert walks in, and he's like, "What? I can't believe he's like, yeah, this is my collection of George Washington's wigs, you know. We've, we've been using them in the school plays, I don't know, are they worth anything? He didn't understand what he had. It's not always easy to know what something is worth. And when we go from a physical object to something more abstract, this gets even more difficult. You can think about this in terms of your location. What kind of opportunity would have to show up on your front door for you to completely move from where you are now? Right, that's a question of how high of a value do you place on where you live? And that changes right that that cost benefit analysis changes person to person and life situation to life situation if you're single it might just be that there is another place right that you don't need any reason at all it'll just go i don't know we'll figure it out if you've got three kids in school you might want to think that one through a little bit that's going to have to be a very intriguing offer Or we could flip this and and put it on the negative side of the equation. How badly would things have to go wrong for you to want to move away? Questions of assigned value. As pertinent to the book of Hebrews, we're going to be looking at the broad question throughout the whole book of what value should be placed on the Christian faith. How do I know what it is worth? What would you be willing to give up to get it? What would you be willing to lose to keep it? It's a question of value. And that value question is the backdrop against which the book of Hebrews plays out because this book is written to a group of embattled Christians who have lost so much that they are considering whether the value of their Christian faith is worth holding on to. Should I stick with it or should we just go back to what we were doing before? I'm not sure it's worth it. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is coming alongside this embattled group of Christians and encouraging, saying, don't give up. It's still worth it. I know you've lost a lot. In fact, you're going to lose more. But it's worth it. That is the book of Hebrews. He's going to argue that Christ is better than everything else. Through the next 13 chapters, we will have a front row seat to really what is probably the most developed Christology in the whole New Testament, as the person of Christ is considered up and against the old Judaism, uh, system of Judaism, and as he's shown systematically to be better in every way. This morning, we're going to cover the whole book. Before we do that, we should probably pause for a moment and pray. Lord God, help us as your people to be reminded, to see clearly the value of what we have. If there are those who are considering wandering away, abandoning what they possess, would the beauty and glory and joy and value of being in Christ be shown clearly? And if there are any who are here today or here regularly who have not given their life to Christ, Would you, through your spirit, convict and bring about an unquenchable desire to have this immense salvation that we have in Jesus? We praise you, God, for you are worthy of our praise. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Anytime you go through any biblical book, there's some background questions that you should try to work through, and uh, I'm going to try to go through those fairly quickly this morning, and then we will work through that outline. The outline that you have in your notes is really an outline of the book and less an outline of the sermon, although I will follow it pretty closely here once we get past these introductory comments. First question you always ask, opening up any new book, who wrote it? And here is one of the only times in the Bible we go, we have really no clue. Uh, The author does not name himself. There are a few things that we do know. First, we we know it's a man because there is masculine self-referential language throughout the book. So, we know this is a masculine writer. We know that he knows the audience, and he knows them quite well. You'll see in chapter 13, he's going to going to talk about their relationship, or in chapter 5, he's going to have a lot of comfort to look at them and say some very difficult pastoral things. He's not risking a relationship. He has enough of a uh, uh, rapport built up with the recipients of this letter that he's willing to say something that's hard. We know that the author knows Timothy. And we know from chapter 2, verse 3, that, that he was at least close with the apostles, if not one of the apostles, although I would probably argue for the former instead of the latter. And so there's a lot of different names that have been tossed out through church history. Some have argued that it's Paul. I think that's that's really difficult for me to see. There's just not the normal Pauline language, and the, the, the those who would argue for Paul would suggest that he's using a scribe or somebody to to mark down his thoughts in a way that aren't really in his language. Probably the least convincing, at least in my opinion, but Barnabas or Apollos or a bunch of other names have been thrown out. In short, we don't know. So, we don't know who it is, and to whom is it written? Really, Jewish Christians, and we know that just because of the assumption of their understanding of Judaism. This is a, a group of beleaguered Christians who came out of a Jewish background, and they probably, although there's some disagreement on this, I would suggest that they are probably living in Rome. They are Christians who came out of Judaism who are living in Rome, and some of that shows up because you see a greeting from the Italians in chapter 13, verse 24. So, the, the other people who lived nearby you say hi kind of thing. And then also a bunch of the circumstantial evidence, which comes around the next major question, when was it written? There are a few uh, things we can probably say, and if, if, particularly if you accept the hypothesis that this is a group of Christians in Rome. So if that's the case, then we have a few uh, dates that help us pin down what is going on here. First, it's before 70 AD everyone agrees on that, because in 70 AD the temple is destroyed. And so, the author would be talking about the sacrificial system in a necessarily different way if the temple was no longer in Jerusalem. So, we have, it has to have been before then. Uh, We can narrow that window a little bit. If you look uh, that they are told in chapter 12, verse 4, that you have not yet resisted to the point of bloodshed, and if these are a group of Christians in Rome, that bloodshed is going to begin in the mid-60s under, quite famously, Emperor Nero, who's going to enact Pretty brutal persecution on Christians in Rome. So probably before 64 AD with their neurotic persecution. And then in between, that's the the top of the date, probably the bottom of the date is around the uh, 50s AD when Emperor Claudius kicked out the Jewish Christians who were living in Rome. And we know that because in chapter 10, verse 34, it says that they have had their possessions stolen, right? So we have kind of a window here between 50 AD and 64 AD is about when this book is going to be written. Things are heating up for Christians in Rome. It's not going well. They've just been kicked out not too long ago. They lost all of their possessions. They had to hide on the outskirts of the city. They've probably made it back into the city proper at this point after the 10-15 years or so but the writing is on the wall it's a unique time in redemptive history because the Jewish aeon and the Christian aeon overlap for a short period of time and so it's hard to see the daylight between Christianity and Judaism at the time. If you read through the book of Acts, you'll find that the apostles are still going to the temples and the synagogues. There aren't churches. The, the, the message that the Messiah has come is still going out to the Jews those who were to receive the Messiah, and that's still primarily where that message is being proclaimed, though it has made its way into the ears of the Gentiles through the Apostle Paul. So we're in this peculiar time where this overlap, uh, uh, what is the distinction between Christianity and Judaism and the Messianic Jew? You know, have all of the Jews heard of the message of Jesus at this point? It's hard to say. It's hard to say. So, it's unique in terms of redemptive history, but also the book is going to be unique in terms of some of its elements. It does not share a lot of what the rest of the New Testament epistles look like. There is not a greeting. There isn't really a a closing farewell to friends type of language that you frequently see in Paul's letters. Many have argued, and I think it's probably convincing, this was written to be a sermon. Here you go. Here's what you're going to read on your Sunday morning. Here's the letter to the Hebrews. They all gather together, the Lord's people on the Lord's day, and they sit down and have this word of exhortation, which is how it's described in chapter 13, verse 22, the same way Paul describes some of his sermons in the book of Acts. So it's likely that this is written to be a sermon, which you have some homework this week. Go read through it. Thirteen chapters, you can get through the whole thing. It's not too bad. Go read the whole book in one sitting if you can. So, it's written by someone we don't know to a group of embattled, beleaguered Christians in Rome in the mid-60s, early mid-60s, and they are facing persecution. In the midst of all of that, okay, there's your background information As the persecution is heating up, the simmer is going, getting ready to overflow into a boil. They're wondering, should we still hold to this Christianity thing? When we were just Jews living in Rome, no one bothered us. Is it still worth it? The book is dominated by really two features, first, comparison, and we're going to look at that today in in length, that's really what I'm going to to form this around, comparing Christ to the old system of Judaism. And second, interspersed among the comparisons are a bunch of warnings. So the author knows they're about to turn back, and what he's trying to offer them, according to chapter 13, is a word of exhortation and encouragement. Don't give up. It's hard. I know it's hard. Don't give up. What you have in Christ is better. And that is the book in a nutshell. And periodically, throughout, five different times, the author is going to give these warnings. So if you want to look at one, if you're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, we'll just flip here real quickly. After the very first comparison, which we'll look at in a moment, the author says, chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Jump down to verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This is a warning. Verse 4, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed among His will, for what it was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified elsewhere. He's going to go on and talk about Christ, right? This is the great comparison between Christ and the angels. You have something better. What's going to happen if you give up on the better thing? That line of argument is going to happen five times. These warnings in chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, chapter 10, and chapter 12. Don't give up. You have something better. Don't turn away. Don't drift. Don't let the message just kind of fade. You have something better. So, the book is an exhortation, an encouragement to those struggling in faith to not give up because Jesus is superior in every way. The author is going to systematically consider the alternative of Judaism. This is a book of assigning proper value. It's going to look at them and say what you have is more valuable than what you're considering going towards don't make that mistake keep going keep going all right let's look broadly at the outline i am uh, three main categories here two subpoints each So, in Christ, you have a superior revelation. In Christ, you have a superior reconciliation. And in Christ, you have a superior rest. That outline has been uh, changed a little bit, but largely borrowed from commentator Dennis Johnson. I thought he had the best outline of the book. I didn't feel like I could improve upon it. Changed a little bit of the wording. But three main categories begin with the truth that in Christ, you have a superior revelation. And first, our first comparison of the book is to show that Christ is better than the angels. So we open up chapter two, verse one. Long ago, you ever talk to somebody who's, who's a let me back up kind of storyteller? You know, how'd you, how, how, how was your weekend? You know, it was good. Actually, you know what, let me back up. When I my 15th birthday, you're like, <laughs> and you start, okay. You know what, actually, I need to go back some more. In Lincoln's second inaugural, you're like, okay, you know what, I, whew, that he's a preacher after all he's a let me back up kind of guy long ago you're going to see down in verse three he he through christ create or the end of verse two excuse me created the world so we were literally at the very beginning of things long ago at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he's spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high, having become much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. He begins at the beginning. God used to reveal himself in this way, but now he has revealed himself in a better way. He previously spoke through the prophets, he spoke through the messengers of angels, but now he spoke through His Son. This is that comparison in a very condensed form. That's going to happen a bunch of other times through this book. Let me look at this older thing that you used to have in the Old Covenant. Look at what you have in Christ. It's better. It's better. What you have in Christ is better than what the old system offered you. That pale shadow of a good thing has become full and vibrant in Jesus. God is now speaking through His Son, and His Son, you notice in verse 3, is the exact imprint of His nature. Jesus isn't a cheap knockoff. He is God who took on flesh in order for us to more fully know God. He has revealed Himself in a better way. This, by the way, is is why we need to understand all of the revelation of God. All of our Old Testament, all of our New Testament needs to be understood through the person of Christ. Because it is at the cross and through the work and person of Jesus Christ that we see most clearly who God is. All of the other things are, you know, it's like a fuzzy picture, it's there, I'm looking at it. But it is in Christ that we put on that absolute perfect 2020 vision and we can see God most clearly. He is the exact imprint. There is nothing better that is offered to you. It is in Christ. Jesus is a better revelation, and He is a better messenger. You see this comparison to the angels. It seems like a little bit of an odd one to begin with, but He's he's really poking holes uh, systematically through Judaism. The angels are going to be messengers. They bring the message from God to the prophets, to the people, or sometimes even just directly to the people. An angel showed up. That is a messenger from God. We should pay attention. That's a good thing. You want that. You want a word from God. You don't want to be out there not knowing what God wants. But isn't it better if instead of God sending a messenger, He sends Himself? Right? This is the difference between an ambassador and the president. The ambassador speaks on behalf of one who is greater. The president speaks on his own authority. Christ has all authority. He has come. There is nothing left that we need to hear. It is definitive. It is final. It is the clearest expression of who God is. A messenger good. It's important, but it's not the real thing. It's a lesser version. This is the modern equivalent of having a, a meal with an old friend or talking over FaceTime, right? I'm glad FaceTime exists. That's a good thing. I'd much rather sit down and have dinner. They aren't even close. These two things shouldn't be put in the same sentence together. Jesus is qualitatively better. And you get to that conclusion in verse 14 of chapter 1, are they, speaking of the angels, not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation, right? These are messengers. They're employees. They're not the boss. You have the boss. You have something better. You then have one of those warning passages in chapter 2, and in chapter 3, you get to the second comparison that show that we have a better revelation. Here, we see that Christ is better than Moses. So, in chapter 3, in verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Jesus, excuse me, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. So he argues, we have a better messenger in Christ than the angels, and Christ, you know, God used to speak through the prophets, and Christ is better than them, and if you don't think that I understand that, let me go to the most important of the prophets, Moses, and just say, no, he's better than him. Let me make sure you understand this. Moses probably had more conversations with God than anybody in the entire Bible, and Christ is better than. And it's not, again, not even really close. This isn't JV versus varsity. It's JV versus NFL. That's the comparison. Go ahead, trot out your sophomores onto the field this Sunday. See what happens. It's going to be embarrassing. That is the comparison you have between Moses and Christ. Moses is, what does it say? A faithful servant. What is Christ? Faithful son. They hold a different position. They are different in every way. Christ is better than Moses. So he lays this argument out and looks at them and says, don't long for the days when you had less access to God. What a silly thing to do. You're missing out on the better thing by looking back at what was lesser. Lesser. You're eating a ribeye and longing for a McRib, right? Like, it's, it's just not the same. God's self-revelation in Christ is better than what the Old Testament saints had in the angels and in the prophets. We have a better revelation. Second main point, in Christ we have a superior Reconciliation. Chapter four goes on with another one of those warning sections at the end of chapter three and chapter four. And then at chapter four, verse 14, we see that Christ is a better high priest. And he gives a bunch of different reasons why. Chapter four, 15, he's a better high priest because he identifies with our weaknesses. Chapter four, 16, he's a better high priest because he offers access to God. Chapter 5, verse 3, he's a better high priest because he does not need to offer sacrifices for his own sins. Chapter 5, verse 7, and again in chapter 7, verse 25, he is a better high priest because he has God's ear when he prays. He is right next to God, and when he intercedes, God hears him. Chapter 5, verse 9, he's a better high priest because the salvation that he offers is eternal. And then, chapter 7, verse 23 and 24, he's a better high priest because the office that he holds is forever. All of this is summed up in chapter 7, verse 26. Turn there. Verse 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, he has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever." So, you have to remember the role of the priests in the Old Covenant. The priest is the mediator between God and God's people. And you really hope you've got a good priest, right? Let me take you back to 1 Samuel chapter 3 with Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's worthless sons, and they're stealing sacrifices before it's all the way done they wanted to take a bite out of the leftovers, right? It's like a pastor who's walking into your worship service while you're singing, just blowing in your ear trying to distract you. He's trying to prevent you from effectively worshiping. Hope you don't get a bad high priest. That, that priest stands between you and God you need a good one and and the reason we have a superior reconciliation is because we have a better mediator in Christ we have a better connection to the Father. It's not through the flawed nature of men and the Levitical priesthood. We have the great, forever, perfect High Priest of Jesus. Because, again, even in the Old Testament, let's say you get a good one, one who is holy and upright and does the right things and offers sacrifices for his sins and then for yours. That's only as good as long as he's alive. And then that good high priest dies and you're back to rolling the high priest dice hoping that comes up as good. Okay, here we go again. But if you have a forever perfect high priest then your status before God is no longer in jeopardy, it's no longer in the hands of feeble men who are failures. You have an untouchable assurance, an untouchable joy, an untouchable hope, because what you have in Christ is forever. And it is better than any alternative. Now, let me just pause right here and remind us that these are easy comparisons for us. right this is written to address the siren songs of a first century jewish mindset and we go yeah jesus is a better high priest amen right i'm with you that is easy for you and i but what would be on the comparison list if this was a letter to the americans It's easy for us to affirm this greater high priest language, greater prophet, I'm in greater sacrifice, greater covenant. Yes, yes, and yes. But let us not make the mistake of thinking that we have moved on from the error of undervaluing Christ and overvaluing anything else. We would have our own list that we would need to be reminded of. And it would probably probably not be an issue of great conflict that causes us to apostatize it would rather be great comfort that leads us away and so we have to consider this argument this line of argument not in the specifics of comparing priesthoods but in the principle of is christ better than everything in your life or not Is He better than your portfolio? Is He better than your freedom? Is He better than your following or your legacy or being right? Is He even better than your family? Is He better than your ministry? And it is there that we are going to have a little bit of attention. Like, Well, wait a minute. I don't know I'm better than my family. And then you go and read that description in Luke. Are you not willing to, to turn mother against daughter? Father against son? To follow Him? We would have our own struggles. And Christ is still better. Christ is better than whatever you are contemplating as valuing as the highest value in your life. Whatever broadly is causing you to think, I don't know, do I really need to give my life to Christ? Do I have to give it all away? Can I give some? Church, He is better. Give your life away. It is not yours. It is bought with the price, the glorious price of the life and blood of Jesus to redeem you. All right, back, back to Hebrews. There is a, a second point here in this better reconciliation is the truth that Christ offers a better covenant. Chapter 8, verse 6, but as it is Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises." What you have in Christ is better than the old covenant because the promises are better, right? If you look, jump back up to verse 5, you see the old covenant, it was a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. And the old covenant... You have a a shadow, a, a forgery, an attempt at heaven. In the new covenant, heaven came to earth. God took on flesh. And the shadow of the old covenant is made solid in the new covenant. This is a better reconciliation because it is a better covenant. There's a, a sub-point under this subpoint that this better covenant is highlighted by a better sacrifice. You see here, chapter 10, there are limits to the old system. For since the law was but a shadow of good things, right, just like what we saw in chapter 8, verse 5, since it's a shadow... There are good things to come of the good things instead of the true form of these realities. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The Old Covenant cannot accomplish the goal. It always falls short. It is definitionally inadequate, unable they would, if you keep going in chapter two through four, or, uh, verse 2 through 4 in chapter 10, they would have to one, always be sacrificing. There is never a moment of rest for the sacrifices that would be needed. And then you get to the conclusion, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It can't do it. But what do you have in this better covenant? What do you have in this better reconciliation Well, you have a better sacrifice. Chapter 10, verse 11. Every priest stands daily, right? He has to keep offering these sacrifices over and over again at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Once and for all. Have to offer another sacrifice, he is of infinite value, being the second person of the Trinity, therefore, his sacrifice can redeem infinitely. Now, we've let me just pause here, and we've been considering this question of value from our side of the equation, right. I don't know, is it, it, should I give up on my Christianity or not? That's the question that's being posed in Hebrews, saying, no, Christ is better than. And I've used this analogy many times before, so uh, pardon me for giving it again. But I know, just through pastoral work, that there are enough people who doubt their own value. And if you hear the word self-worth and you immediately start being introspective, Going, yeah, that's me. I have a a critical brain that is always telling me how inadequate I am. I have the best news for you. Let me go back to my junior achievement, right? Supply and demand. It really doesn't matter the supply. All that matters is what someone is willing to pay. What was the Almighty God willing to pay for you? Eternal sacrifice of Jesus for you. Does it blow your mind? You look at that and you go, "There's no way. I'm not worth it. I'm so broken. I'm so inadequate. There's no way. I wouldn't give that up for me. I wouldn't give up anything for me." And God looks down at you and says, "You are mine, and I will pay." And He infinite price in the blood of my son to redeem you so if that thought of of self-worth the doubt of your own self-worth ever creeps into your head again you turn to hebrews chapter 10 and you tell your lying brain god said otherwise and that is the final word on that I need no other affirmation from anyone or anything else. It is God who has the definitive word on my worth. He gave his own son for you. Final point. Through Christ, we have a superior rest. First, in Christ, you were offered a better inheritance. Look later in chapter 10, verse 32. Recall in former days, after you were enlightened, you endured hard struggle and sufferings, sometimes even being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. You have a better rest because you have a better inheritance. What you look forward to in Christ is better than anything else. These were those beleaguered Christians who had suffered. But what did they do through that? You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How? How can you joyfully accept someone stealing from you? Because they can't take what's of real value. Because in Christ, you have an immense value of of inheritance to come. They have a better possession. Their promises are backed by God. It can't be diminished. You're living a, a great illustration on this right now. You've been to the grocery lately. What your dollar does now is not what it did a year ago. And you look at it, you're like, I don't know what to say about it. The value isn't there anymore. They, they devalued it right in front of your eyes. church, the promises of God cannot be devalued. You have a glorious inheritance that cannot be watered down. It cannot be taken away because it rests on the very character of God. You have a better inheritance. Finally, through Christ, you are offered a better kingdom. Chapter 12. Here, the author is going to compare The nation of Israel being brought out of Egypt and they're brought to that that mountain in the wilderness, right? Sinai, it's in verse eighteen, it's blazing fire and gloom and tempest. That the animals couldn't even go near it, or they would have to be stoned. But in verse twenty-one, indeed, so terrifying was that sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear, but you you didn't go to Sinai. Where have you gone? You've come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels and festal gathering. You aren't at some mountain in the wilderness. You came to the very house of the living God. Your inheritance is better, it's just better. You aren't given a promised land. You are given the keys to the kingdom of God. Your rest is grounded in the presence of God. And so, church, Christ is better. Don't give up. Don't give up, right? That's the conclusion. The big argument is Christ is better, but the application of the argument is keep going. Don't concede. Keep fighting. You have a better inheritance in Christ. You have a better reconciliation. You have better rest. You have better everything in Christ Jesus. He has revealed himself in a better way. He is going to save you in a better way. He is going to bring about your glorification in a better way. Do not miss the greatness of what you have in Christ. And again, that applicationary uh, conclusion, we can see just, uh, this shows up repeatedly through the book, but in chapter 12, therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God don't give up press on you have something better faith may be hard but what you have in Christ is superior to anything and everything else As we go through this book, if you are in Him, delight in the great salvation that is yours. Sit in awe of your Savior and just let the joy of salvation wash over you verse after verse. And if you're not, if you've never repented and believed, I invite you to do so today, to see the value of what comes in Christ and to stick with us through this. And hear of the great salvation that can be yours. It's better than anything else. Let's pray. Lord God, we rest in these promises. Who you've revealed yourself to be through your son. And the great salvation that we have. And the glorious inheritance that is ours. Help it fill up our thinking to dominate our lives to your glory. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen.